Jewish Education and Media is pleased to present L'Chaim, a program that highlights the people, issues, and events of importance to the Jewish community. Now here is your host, Rabbi Mark Golub. I'm Mark Golub. And when I was growing up as a child in New York City, living with my grandparents on West End Avenue, my grandfather would often take me to shul, to his synagogue around the corner. It was a small synagogue, more narrow than wide, with black slatted wooden chairs. And as a child, the rabbi, with his impressive white beard, speaking only in Yiddish, was awe-inspiring. That rabbi was Naftali Karlbach, Zichrono Livracha, a great Talmud scholar and Orthodox rabbi who'd been born in Berlin, left Germany before the war, and then in 1938 became the rabbi of this little shul, Kihilat Jacob, on West 97th Street. Today, Rabbi Karlbach's granddaughter is a woman helping to shape Jewish life and Jewish culture through the world of her music. She's an award-winning singer, songwriter, and educator who's performed and taught in cities throughout the world. She sold over 1 million records, blending Hebrew folk songs with contemporary pop music, jazz, and gospel. In fact, her most recent album, as we do this edition of L'Chaim, Believe, features her band and a new gospel choir led by Pastor Milton Vaughn, which won the Vox Pop Fan Favorite Award in the Adult Contemporary Song category. She's performed at interfaith gatherings, including one at Mount Fuji in Japan, as well as at the gates of Auschwitz for Yom HaShoah. And on top of all that, she's a wife and mother of five children. It is such a joy for me to welcome to L'Chaim, the incomparable Nishama Karbach and Nishama Mazal Tov on a fabulous career. Thank you so much for joining us on L'Chaim. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. It's so wonderful to be with you, even though oh, we're not together. I know, but we're almost together. Almost. Yes. Nishama, many people may know that you're also the daughter of one of the great Jewish songwriters and performers of the 20th century, Shlomo Karlbach, who revolutionized Jewish prayer and Jewish folk music by creating these marvelous Hasidic melodies for many of the most well-known verses of the Torah and Sidur, the Jewish prayer book. And his composition of the prayer of Ha'er Einenu took third place in the Israel Hasidic Song Festival of 1969. And many of his songs, such as Esa Einai, Pichuli, Am Yisrael Chai, Oda Vinu Chai, 
Og Yishama, which is sung at virtually every Jewish wedding, and on and on and on. And invariably, Jews are now singing Shlomo Karlbach melodies without knowing they were created by Shlomo Karlbach. They think they're from Sinai. In any case, Neshama, in many ways, you are now carrying on the Karlbach musical tradition. And I want to begin by asking you if you can you know, describe what your, what the influence of your father's music was on you as a child. So as a child, he was not an influence on me. As a child, I was deeply resentful because his music um, took him away from me. And as a young child, he was, he was my whole life, my most favorite person, my, my person. And when I was young, all I saw was that his music took him away. So I didn't hear it. I didn't want to hear it. I didn't want to deal with the 6,000 people who were always in the house hanging around, um, taking his attention. Um, it was only when I grew older that I began to appreciate the depth of his artistry and um, the depth of who he was. I think it's hard for a child um, at any age to appreciate a parent as a person. You know, you, you see them as like, get me a sandwich. <laughs> drive me somewhere. You know, I love when my children relate to me, like, you know, when are we leaving and what are we doing? And cause that's really, that's what kids should feel. I did not have that relationship with my dad. I just wanted more of him and I never had enough. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was very blessed because he died when I just turned 20. I was very blessed that from the age of 15 till 20, I saw him and I was able to tell him how I felt about him. I was able to tell him I was proud of him. Um, and that's a gift that I, um, I wouldn't trade for anything. I did you ever tell him you were angry with him? Yes. What I did. Did, and how did he take it? How did he take it? He would smile and kiss my head. <laughs> He'd, you know, when I, would, when I would use profane language, which if you know me, I do a little too often, he would say, oh, you're so beautiful till you open your mouth, my darling. <laughs> He would give me, oh, you're so sweet when you're angry. You're so cute. He never, he never really responded. Uh-huh. Um, okay. Uh, so what was your home like for you and your sister? Um, we lived, we grew up in Toronto. Officially, that's where we went to school. Uh, my mother was from there. And since my father was never really in one place and New York where I was born in those days was not the most safe, you know, it's a different world now. Um, or different world pre-COVID. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what's going on right now, but we moved to Toronto when I was five and we had a normal, you know, normal-ish life until our father blew into town and the world exploded and 20,000 people showed up at the house and, you know, we became celebrities, <laughs> whatever weird stuff came along with that. But without my dad there, it was very quiet. Your mother was Elaine? Yeah, she is. She, she is, is still. Lovely, lovely. And my father, my father gave her the Hebrew name Neila, which she goes by even now. That's lovely. Um, what was the Jewish or Orthodox nature of your home and life as a child? So we were Orthodox growing up. Um, I went to an Orthodox girls yeshiva, which was a, a very intense, painful experience. Actually, school was not easy. How painful. Why painful? Why painful? You know, I haven't spoken about this publicly. I'm actually, I'm writing a book. It was, um, it was a place that was um, sexist and misogynistic and um, downputting 
of all that we were did not see women as anything but you know creatures there to serve and have babies and make chicken and um really i was too outspoken i did not fit in the box so i got into a lot of trouble a lot and i i spent a lot of time in the hallway and it's literally only in my in my you know recent years that i've begun to really explore the the pain that i went through in that yeshiva um so that was when I was in elementary school. And then for high school, I went to a more egalitarian co-ed Hebrew school. So it was a little bit, you know, it was definitely a huge improvement. Um, and we were still Orthodox throughout. All right. I want to come back here, though, to your yeshiva experience. Okay. Because you said something so interesting to me. Yes. You were outspoken. Yes. You instinctively knew there was something wrong going on. Yes. Where do you think, where do you think that came from in you? Because, you know, you had friends in this school that went along with it. You did not. You ended up in the hall. <laughs> Why did that happen to you? What was it about your upbringing or, or who you are in your soul as you look back on it? Good question. I was not only in the hall. I was locked in rooms sometimes without food or water or bathroom. This is terrible. I, I had a very hard childhood. And actually, I have a very close friend who also went to yeshiva. And we reflect on this a lot. What was it about me? Um, I think it was they couldn't, they couldn't control me. And when my father came in, the whole school would pass out. I would tell him, you know, I have a, if you ever came to Toronto, which was very rare, I would say, listen, I have a test fifth period. Can you just show up? And he would show up. He would like poke his head in the door and he would have donuts and a guitar and they'd be like, man, they would fall over and no one remembered about the test. And suddenly there was a big concert and I got away with all of that. And he would say, how's my daughter Nishamala doing? And they would say, oh, she's the best student. And in the meantime, I'd been in the hall the whole morning. <laughs> um, but I would fight with them about um, the worthiness of women. They would tell me things like, you know, you're not sewing very well. You're never going to find a husband. And I'd be like, please. <laughs> you're not, you're not sewing very well. I, I could not sew, Mark. This no. was this was your education in a yeshiva? Oh, please. We had a lot of home ec. Also, my mother my mother was macrobiotic. I'd, my mom is incredible and she's a nutritionist. And we, we had like a very healthy childhood. And the, the home ec teacher brought in this huge vat of Crisco. So she would put like cups and cups of Crisco in everything that she was teaching us to cook. And I went home crying and I said to my mom, you know, how am I gonna find a husband? Cause I'm not cooking with Crisco. <laughs> My mom's like, oh, no Crisco in this house. Okay. Were you literally told in some way, it was articulated to you, you have to worry as a child about whether you're going to find a husband? Yes. You know. Explicitly. You're, you're a wife and a mommy. Yes, I am. And you're a sophisticated person. As you Thank look you. back on that, isn't that like criminal Yes. Yes. They were, they were racist as well. In what way? Um, they would speak, um, they would put down people of color. They would, um, they would diminish anyone who wasn't Jewish. All right. Your father isn't around, but right. your mother is. Yes. And the little I know about your mother, this doesn't represent who she was. No. So no, we were constantly 
in, in a revolution, in a little battle. And she would come and save me. She would dig me out from the closet, wherever they put me. And it was, it was definitely, I mean, this is, I'm saying this to you, this is the first time that I've spoken about it. I've been exploring um, this whole conversation in this book that I'm writing. Um, it was a very complex, bizarre way for me to grow up, to be an Orthodox woman in this setting, knowing intrinsically in my, in my blood, knowing that what they were telling me was wrong. Um, and then going to my father and when my father would show up, I was suddenly important and beloved. Right. So that was confusing. But it, and it, then, but it really didn't help you. No. Well, I mean, it didn't, it didn't bring me down, but it was a painful way to grow up. It was a, it was a painful place to be. Mm -hmm. um, and I was there for a very long time. Mm -hmm. um, are you still an observant Orthodox Jew now? I am not. When did that change for you? I stopped being Orthodox when I got divorced. Um, and mostly I did because I didn't know who I was anymore. And when I got divorced, it was almost nine years ago. Um, I began to question absolutely everything. And my Orthodox life, which I had led my whole life until then, um, did not make as much sense to me. And then I was really, really blessed. Um, and I must say, I, I say it out loud, I am not necessarily affiliated with any movement because I don't really know where I fit, but I had the privilege of attending a URJ Biennial. Um, and it was there- That's The reform movement. The reform movement. It was there for the first time that I witnessed powerful women standing up and reading Torah. And my career had been long and successful, thank God, until then, but it was mostly in orthodox slash conservative spaces where I didn't really experience a lot of women singing. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I didn't have any women colleagues, if you can imagine. I was the first orthodox woman to sing publicly for men. Mm -hmm. I had hate mail for years and years and years dealing with the backlash from the orthodox movement about how I'm shaming my entire lineage, my family. And then, I, and then I get to a biennial after I, you know, change my life and get divorced and I'm a single mom of two and I, um, I found sisters over there. And it became less for me about calling myself Orthodox and going to a shul with a mechitza and more about connecting in the deepest way that I could. And the way I could was singing with my sisters. And I have a group of women friends who sing who, you know, who pray That's a for... wonderful story. Thank That's you. Wonderful they story. changed my life, Mark, I must tell you. I am um, going to yeshiva. I never had sisters. I, I didn't fit in with that world. Um, I had good friends growing up in Israel, but I was really a little bit of a loner growing up. And until I, it, but it took me ripping myself in half and throwing, you know, throwing my choices away and making changes. Um, I think not just that I found them, but that I was able to be a friend to them in the way that they were to me. And um, so I am no longer Orthodox because I can't stomach the mechitza, actually. My whole life, I felt it was a cocoon and it was like a love space and um, that changed for me. Mm -hmm. So I don't know where I fit because my heart is very Orthodox. I hear Ashkenazi language in my head when I pray. I, I hear a lot of oys. <laughs> In my own love. It's such a, I've never heard that expression. And it's so interesting. My heart is orthodox. 
I think what you're what you mean, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, is that the feeling you have about Yiddish tight is what you mean when you say my heart is orthodox. It's yes. not about halacha for you. Am I right? Yes, you are right. And 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 by the way, I do feel very connected to so much of the ritual, and um, I just I just want to be me. And for some reason, it's been hard to be me in the Orthodox world. And so here we you are. Ha you had two children when you divorced. You are yes. now five children. Yes, I have three stepchildren. Um, my beautiful husband um, brought them to my life. So I'm mama of two, stepmother of three. It's a busy, busy pandemic in our house. <laughs> a and, lot of food, oh a, lot of, a lot of cooking. Oh, oh boy. <laughs> And do all the kids get along? You know, they do. They really, I mean, I don't want to sugarcoat it. It, it was um, my husband, Menachem and I, we, we chose each other. The children had no choice. <laughs> you know, I mean, we, we, I think we both wanted to make sure that they were comfortable, but we, you know, we got married. They didn't. And we've had our. That's so honest. You know, yeah. that's the way it works, isn't it? It is unfortunately, I mean, fortunately and unfortunately, you know, because Both, especially right. And I, I, I grapple with it all the time. A lot of therapy, you know, am I doing the right thing? Am I, am I doing everything that I can to be the best mother in the world? Um, and we've had some moments where the kids are, you know, it's not easy to live with people, not ever. And the children overall, I mean, they stood under the chuppah with us hugging each other. You know, they called each other, um, when they were engaged, fiancers, they called themselves Love the fiancers. And then they Love became siblings. Well, and they were, it, they were lovely. It's a credit to you and your husband. Your husband's name is? Menachem Creditor, Menachem. actually. Thank you. Well, good for you and Menachem. That is wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, not easy. I give a lot of strength to people who try to blend families. It's not absolutely. Easy. And it takes a lot of work. And a lot of love, doesn't it? Tremendous. But so does life. Life requires more love than we think we can manufacture. And yet somehow we do. So if I was in your home, would there be Shabbat? In what, in what sense is there an active Jewish life for you and your children now? So we have Shabbat and all the accoutrement. We have Kiddush, we have Challah, we have Havdalah. Um, Hanukkah, candles, um, we do a lot of ritual, but then we might watch a movie and that's Shabbos here in COVID moments. Absolutely. <laughs> that's what we do. Um, we, you know, I, I am not a big shul person. I say that out loud. I, I've struggled going to shul, um, but I really miss shul having not gone all these months. That's interesting. You're not a yeah, shul right? person, but why are you not a shul person? I think I had a hard childhood at shul. I think I had a hard time being in shul. I was in shuls where my father would be davening and I would be there as his child. But I was, you know, I had to go through an alleyway to get to a very skinny staircase to get up to the woman's section, which was like a little, um, almost like an attic in the top of the shul with a very thick piece of lace separating the women from whatever was going on below so that god forbid the, the men didn't see um that was very painful for me i um i went to a wedding once where the husband 
the Chatan had a 12-piece band and catering and dancing. And the, the bride and women had tuna fish sandwiches across the street in a gymnasium and a tape recorder. And I, I had done that. And I had seen and witnessed the degradation of women um, in a way that I'm still processing because it still hurts me. I understand. And so going to shul has, you know, it's different now, but I also am so used to the orthodox tefillah that I, I don't necessarily, um, I don't necessarily relate to the liturgy mm -hmm. that's not orthodox. So I, I'm a little bit, you know, that's why I say I'm a little bit nowhere, but that's okay. Absolutely. God, but, is, God is with me no matter where I go. Were you ever at the synagogue on West 79th Street? Yes, I was. And what are your, by the way, they're, they're the machitza men and women sat on the same floor. What's, what was your experience there? Well, when my father was alive, it was glorious and it was home for me. And he would bring me up on the bima with him for, um, for different moments. Um, my sister and I would be up there under his talus next to him, with him um, his whole life. And on Yom Kippur, he would extend the mechitza all the way up to where the Torah was so that the women were close by. They weren't far away. Oh, that's um, and my experience with my father, orthodoxy was glorious and welcoming. But when he passed away, um, I learned what it, was, what it was without him. And that's when, uh, that's when it became very painful. Okay. And you know, you and I should both say, the orthodoxy you experienced, mm -hmm. which really, it sounds very painful. I'm sorry. And, and not all no, of it no, is painful. Yeah, I, I don't mean to ever pigeonhole. Yeah, I know. But the truth is, it was. At yes. the same time, you and I understand that there are attempts which really reflect what you just described about your father in a modern orthodox, open orthodox setting, where the kind of difference between men and women is no longer part of the orthodox world. Now that's, again, only a piece of orthodoxy. And it sounds like you were subjected to really, you know, in many ways, the least lovely of orthodox traditions, especially as it came to a woman. But you and I understand that it's that within the orthodox world today, there are many, many orthodox communities which are which are wholly embracing yes, of women. very much yes very much I I um I look forward to those days and I'm not closed to community um, I'm being honest with you about the healing that I've had to do in my own life you know you're known to be a feminist you're known to be somebody who speaks out on behalf of women. Jewish women, and you have you have championed human rights causes across the board, and you've been very honest about your own experience. But I want you to now. I'm asking you more of a philosophical question. As you look at where Jewish life is as a whole, what is your sense of the way in which the Jewish community has transcended? this women are second-class citizens and their job is to get married and so how would you describe jewish life as it applies to women today 
And by the way, it also touches on the way women, the role women play in the state of Israel. But in general, just speak to me about your philosophy here as you look at the world of men and women in the Jewish community. I think there are, there are gradations. You know, the Jewish community is vast. There, there are so many different pockets of, of people who come together, of belief, of, of observation, of, I feel, I feel like there is just across the board, there, is, there are so many variables to that question because there's not one united Jewish community, unfortunately, right? Or maybe it's fortunate. And there are some places where women are treated equally with respect and social justice is a really important part of their service and their work, which I admire. And it is crucial for all that we are, especially in this moment in time. And then there are places that, um, that do not. And that's where the work lives. That's where the work lies um, because there are, there's a lot of healing to be done. There's also tremendous progress that's been made. And I, I think because of my life experience, I've kind of witnessed a lot of each of that, each of those sides, both the glory of the strength that we have, we have created for ourselves. And also looking back at the journey that still has to, you know, probably even begin in some of these communities. So that's not, a, that's not, there's not one layer to that question, but I, I definitely feel tremendous hope. I feel like people are, people are waking up slowly. Did it take COVID? Did it take I don't know. Everyone, everyone's got their own space and time in life. And um, I'm really grateful that I've had the experiences that I've had both um, glorious and painful because it's given me my life. It's given me my own perspective and my own strength. Good and I wouldn't you. trade any of it. Not, not one second you. of it. In one moment, I want to talk about you and your music, okay. but it would be inappropriate for us not to touch on the controversy that erupted after your father's death, when he was accused of sexual improprieties by a number of women. And in fact, in January of 2018, you were quoted as having written an open letter to the women who said they were harmed by your father, in which you said, I accept the fullness of who my father was, flaws and all. I am angry with him and they refused to see his faults as the totality of who he was. That was a profoundly honest and a profoundly courageous thing for you to write, Neshama. Thank you. And there are those in the Jewish community who now, they want to ban your father's music. And I understand there are even Jews who want to ban your music as well. And that's the part that, I wanted you to speak about what, how do you feel when people say your father's music shouldn't be played or his daughter's music shouldn't be played? Well, that, that has been my life these last few years because it wasn't that they wanted to ban, they did. There, my father was um, canceled in many places, you know, the cancel culture. Yes. Um, and I went down with him. What? You know, Absolutely. By the way, in some ways, of course. Okay. My, my entire, you know this. But I, I just want to say this to you, and I want the audience to hear this. I want you to hear this. Okay. In the Jewish tradition, a child is never held responsible 
for something untoward which a parent may have done. And it's absolutely reprehensible for anyone in the Jewish community to be less embracing of you because of what they may feel about your father. And here you are making a marvelous, even a holy contribution, kadosh, to Jewish life, which merits only our praise and our full support. And it outrages me for you, Neshama, that in any way you and your music were canceled. But I wanted you to hear me say that. I want the audience to hear me say that. And then I want you to talk about, I want you to explain to our audience the burden you've had to live with because of this cancel mentality in the Jewish community, which has no basis in the Jewish tradition. Speak to that for a moment. You know, I, I think there is probably a lot of things that go down in the Jewish community and in the world in general that are not reflected in our in our Torah, in our collective moral standard of living. Um, so this was no different and 100%, whether people felt bad about it or not, my father's music in many communities was banned and absolutely my appearances were canceled. I was told personally that I was not welcome in many of these places. Um, and for about two years, I was alone um, and without my work, which is not okay for a single mom. Um, and I must tell you, it, it forced me um, to become the best me that I ever could have become. And I am grateful, as I said, I'm grateful for every experience that I've ever had that's been literally heart-wrenching. Um, this particular thing, um, this was this was this demolished me more than almost any other thing that I've had to go through, and I've had I've gone through a lot. So, uh, yay! So, by the way, did it stir up in you feelings of resentment for your father? Of course, of course, and it's I think it's really hard also to have a conversation with someone who has passed away because they really don't answer. I don't know if you know that, <laughs> but. I said a lot to him and he, you know, I can imagine what he would say, but it became clear to me that I, it didn't matter what he would say. I, I was, I was so fixated for a while. Did he do it? What did he do? These are allegations about behaviors that went down before I was born. So, so long ago, um, I never saw it. I never witnessed it. And I spent almost a year calling everyone in the world that I knew and everyone that I didn't know, trying to get some clarity about history. I needed some, I needed to understand. Um, and by the way, when I spoke about my sisters before, it was those relationships that gave me the strength to even have this exploration. Because before this time, when the allegations first surfaced in 96, it was very easy for me to say, no, it's a lie. He never did anything, just like everyone else around me said that he was God's gift to the world and he never did anything wrong and that they were liars. And I, I've said publicly that I'm very ashamed that that was my response when I was a child. I was still a product of my Orthodox upbringing. Um, I wasn't heard, I wasn't believed. And that's how I viewed women. It was, it's very painful. And so now when I stopped being Orthodox and I began to explore my own strength and see myself differently. 
it allowed this conversation around me to actually play out. So not only, you know, they gave me life on so many levels and it became very clear to me after a while that it wasn't about what he did or what he didn't do. It was about um, how am I going to figure out who I am now? And how will I love him anyway, Mm -hmm. even when I'm pretty mad? How can I love him and not love him at the same time? Mm -hmm. And you do love him. Oh, so much, so much. Um, I could cry telling you how much I love and miss my father. And, and yet I'm not okay with that behavior if that's what he did. And, and I, of course, you know, no clarity. Um, but what my choice was, who do I want to be? And I am, um, I am a feminist and I believe in us. I believe in the power of all human beings, women, especially. I believe that no human being should be hurt. I believe no human being should be bullied, frightened, canceled, threatened. Um, I have lived through all of that personally, and I was done. And my crusade, which came from like the deepest depths of me was that I was standing for change and standing for me too. And that may have meant that I stood on on a side where my father was not uniting with me. some point in his life, but my soul of souls tells me that if he was alive now, he would apologize. He would make change. And even that doesn't really matter, Mark. You know what I'm saying? It doesn't matter what he would do. What matters is, is my life. And what do I do with this, this little beautiful gift of time that I have? And what do I want my children to know about me? I want my children to know that I fought for change. I want my children to know that I was canceled for a moment and it did not stop me that I will sing anyway. And even in the most painful time of my relationship with my father, I love him anyway. And it's okay. It's okay to be angry and still love at the same time. And my hope is that they learn from that, that they know that it's okay to have all these feelings because they're only feelings after all. Your children are very lucky to have you as their mother. And I'm thinking to myself, how in the world did you become you? (laughs) (laughs) You're just marvelous. Thank you. I hadn't planned on asking this to you at all because it's not about you, but hearing what you say, I want to ask you a question. Again, it's a philosophical question. Got it. You You talk about the cancel culture. And the cancel culture, it infuriates me. It is insidious. And unfortunately, tragically from my perspective, it's coming much more from the left than the right. And that means it's my people who are involved in the canceling. But here's my question for you. For a period of years, it seemed like every time you opened up the newspaper, somebody else was accused of doing something sexually inappropriate and they were canceled. They were fired. And in the Jewish world, if it happened, they were canceled in the Jewish world. What I mean by that is, and I'm not gonna mention specific names. Some of my audience will know who these people are, some will not. One was a journalist, one was a sociologist. And they've done programs for me on JBS. 
and they're brilliant people who have something very important to contribute to Jewish life and the Jewish discussion and the Jewish future. But because of something they are accused of doing, and again, even that's not fair for me to say, Let's, they basically have acknowledged whatever they're accused of, although it's, it's gradations of inappropriate behavior. But they are now not permitted to speak in the Jewish world formally. They're not invited to speak. And it's posed an interesting problem for me personally here at JBS. Do I replay programs that they were on two years, three years, five years ago, which are fabulous discussions and they made wonderful observations and comments and their discussion was wonderful, but is it wrong for them to be seen now on JBS? Do you understand my question? I do. I What's do. your answer? I have so many feelings when you ask me this. First of all, I cannot tell you what you air and what you don't air. Um, I wish I could make it simple <laughs> for all of us to answer those questions. Right, it's not it's simple. Not, it's not simple. No. It's not simple because what we're talking about are behaviors that have gone back centuries and centuries, right? I mean, it, there are actually people today, they're like, oh yeah, he did that to her, of course. Like, that's not weird. Oh, my uncle did that, I did that. That's what, that's what we do. You know, there are people who, it's still normal for people to be harassing and, you know, it, it's what it is. This is, this is, a, this is a bigger statement than, than this question or even this program. And I, I must tell you, I, I feel like this is one of the reasons that I'm in the world is to have this conversation. Um, I traveled, you know, I was canceled. I couldn't, I couldn't pay people to let me walk in, but I was really blessed that some people allowed me to speak. I really truly feel that coming to grips with our good side and our bad side, all of us, each of us in all gradations is why we are here. If that makes sense. Yes, and it does. If we can't somehow hold it all, we are losing, we're losing. If we adore someone so much that we can't see the mistakes they're making and we allow them to hurt us. That's not okay. And if we look at someone who's made a mistake and decide that they're worthless, that's also not okay because we're losing. Either way, we're losing. And either way, we are, um, we're acting like children. You know, as adults, I think, I would hope that we're able to grapple with all of it. If a human being has harmed another one, then they have to be they have to be taken to court. They have to maybe serve jail time. There's no question that they need to be accountable for their bad behavior. Canceled? I don't think you can um, anymore look at that person's work without remembering that they've done something bad. But to cancel, to take away a contribution that's helpful to our beautiful and broken world, we're also losing. How do we, how do we not lose here? How do we, how do we gain strength from this entire experience? I don't know. I only know for, from my own experience 
that um, my father was not here, I was. So I was holding his baggage for him. You know, he, uh, someone, someone brilliant said to me, he feasted and you picked up the tab about my dad. And I mean, my honor, right? Because he's my father and that's, I would do it a hundred times for him. And my situation is different than people who are alive right now who can and should be made accountable for their actions. Um, and still, I do not believe that work, that holiness should be denied. Do I believe that my father's music is tainted because of mistakes he made? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I also though believe that if someone has a problem with it and that takes them away from their own divine space, then they have the right not to sing it. Absolutely. So, right. so I, I have no clear answer because I say yes to all of it. But no, I, it, it, by the way, your answer is wonderful and it's the right answer. You know, Michelle, I'm going to say this, you know this at least as well as I do. In the Jewish tradition, there are two ideas which could never be lost. Human beings are never saints. In our tradition, the rabbis teach, there is no tzaddik gamur. There is no completely righteous person. Yes. Every one of us has a yetzer tov and a yetzer hara. Yep. And we will do things we're sorry for. Yes. And the challenge of being a human being, a mensch, is the acknowledgement and taking responsibility when the Yetzirah gets the better of us in a way that hurts another human being. But that's called being living in this world. Yeah. And that's Yom Kippur. Yeah, and yes, and I was going to say to you. Every day, every yes, year. Yes, we, ultimately, the Jewish ethic is teshuvah. The Jew believes that an honest person can do honest repentance. And honest repentance means you return to the proper way. And in some way, if, you, if the teshuvah is honest, if there's honest remorse, if one does whatever one can to make it up to anyone one has hurt, then one continues with life yes. and should be embraced by the Jewish community. And in many ways, that's what you're trying to teach us. I don't know if that's, if that's exactly it, but I do believe that people are capable of change and either way should not be judged solely for their mistakes or solely for their good deeds. And that's you have to look at the totality of what we are, because none of us are perfect. None of us none are. None of us. And we are in huge trouble if our mistakes begin to dictate our worth. Exactly right. Okay, so now talk to me about your own music. I want to know, Nishama, how does it become so eclectic? How does that develop? And how do you, as a musician, as a composer, as, as a performer, how do you view the broad scope of your work? Um, I don't view it. I just do it. I don't, I don't, I don't, <laughs> I think, I think I just really appreciate a whole lot of different genres and I've been really blessed to work with, um, with musicians and producers who are able to kind of make a big sandwich and, you know, a big smoothie, if you will, <laughs> Of, of all of it. And there's not one piece of, um, of them, of these music styles that kind of define me as, a, as an artist. I love them all. 
and it's been really satisfying and holy to try to make um, a new blend of something new. It's always hard for me to, to really describe my genre completely because you said to me, are you doing gospel? It's like, no, I'm not really doing gospel. Like, are you doing jazz? I'm not really doing jazz. I'm not really a folk singer. Um, but I'm really excited and inspired by all these styles and by all the glorious humans that I work with and play with who I must say, um, I have not seen since the beginning of COVID who I miss terribly, my band, my choir. Mm -hmm. um, these are divine people who have, who have given me the strength to kind of be creative. And um, it's just been a gift, the whole thing. Well, you have your own distinct sound and that's marvelous. But what was it like doing an album, the album Believe with a gospel choir? So it's the second record that I've created with a choir. Um, and I've been performing with these glorious, my brothers and sisters, um, it's been nearly 15 years. So um, exhilarating and wonderful, the work on the record, the work on the road, um, traveling from, you know, from country to country, it's, it's been um, the gift of my lifetime, besides, you know, my, my family to, to explore the world and to see God through their eyes and to experience the world with them through our music. Um, it's just been, I'm really just the luckiest. So lucky. You're the best. <laughs> Nisham, Mark. would you do one of your songs for us? Here happily. happily. Okay, tell us what you're going to do. Okay, so this is uh, from the record Believe, um, which I was so proud was nominated for four independent music awards and the winner of the Vox Pop Award you mentioned for the song Believe. And that was um, just, uh, I felt guilty being so happy. It was a, a, a really warm, sweet pandemic day. And in lockdown, I was really happy and I felt guilty, Mark. You don't have to feel guilty. I did. I felt terrible, but I was I'm very happy. I'm telling you, your rabbi's telling you, you don't have to feel guilty. <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> so um, since the pandemic began, um, I'm really, really so blessed that I've been able to connect with people through Zoom. And we've done now um, nearly 250 Zoom events since April, um, which is just, um, I could cry telling you how blessed I feel. I, I sang for a woman who was converting. I sang for her as she was about to go into the mikvah and I sang for her when she came out. And I sang for a woman who was in the hospice and some of her closest friends who she did not see again. And I've sung for shivas and I've sung for weddings and I've sung for fundraisers, hoping that my voice makes a difference. And um, I've sung for people who are not feeling well. And I'm really, really, really blessed. And um, so this, this recording, Believe, was created before the pandemic, but so much of, of what was said feels so real and true. So this song, Hear Our Prayer, this was our Mishaberach. Um, I created this music, and I should say I, I followed the, the gorgeous vision of Beth Stiles, who is one of the most talented people in the world. She was the producer of the record, and she writes the music. I'm a lyricist and kind of played around with her, but this is really her music, I must say, in terms of composition. And um, I wanted to create with her a Mishaberach that was joyful and happy and that would allow people who were not feeling great to jump out of their beds. You know those Hasidic stories? You're like, someone's really sick, but then the rabbi comes and suddenly they're so happy and they're dancing and they're fine. And that is my, um, my aspirational dream 
for our world. Maybe there can be so much hope and so much joy that people are not singing a dirge as they lie in their beds. Maybe they're just singing a song about healing and it helps. I want it, I just, I just want something to help. So here our prayer is that let us say amen. And um, you hear my choir on this track and you hear hopefully the voices of people ricocheting all over the world as we scream amen to each other's prayers because this is the moment for that. That's it. It doesn't even matter what people are praying for. You're just saying amen. I'm just amen. And in this song, which is another reason I wanted to share it with you is a little piece of one of my father's melodies, kind of hidden, not so hidden, but hidden. Um, because the song without words, the nigun, um, the concept of what that means of inserting your own longings and prayers into a melody, um, which is wordless and um, beyond language, beyond this, the ways that we get caught up in our words, that concept has given me life my whole career. So we had to put a little nigun in this song too. Um, and here it is. That was a very long explanation, Mark, but you, you did ask, so it is your fault. It's my fault and I loved every second. <laughs> okay. May we be blessed. May we be blessed. Please hear our prayer. May we be known. May we be heard. Please hear our prayer.
Just marvelous, wonderful. Mitsuyan Mitsuyotse Minaklo. Thank you, Mark. Just what a gift you are. Bowie Nishama, if people want to hear more of your music, what's the best way for them to do so? Uh, my website. It's just my whole long name, nishamakarlibach.com. You spell that. Say it three times fast. Um, it's not my fault. <laughs> None of it is my fault. Nishamakarlibach.com. Uh, you can um, hear the music. This is also, I'm wearing my jewelry line. It says, believe in my writing, in my handwriting. We collaborate with 100% beads to create jewelry that inspires. Um, we need the good messaging um, on us. I, I don't take this off. I, I just want to remember to believe at all costs, all the time. Mm -hmm. So you can see all of that on our website and feel free to visit and say hi and I'll write back as fast that as is I love, possibly that is lovely. Can. It, you know, I've wanted to have you on Lachayim for so long. You're not only a very lovely and sweet human being, you're also thoughtful and you're a caring Jew and you are one incredible musical artist. So I wish you called Tuva Hatzlacha. You and your whole family should do well. We should come out of this. We're taping this obviously during COVID when it's over. Oh, I'm hoping you and I can see each other in person, but you be well. And I love you. I love your work. Thank and you. I look forward to many, many opportunities to be with you. Thank, Thank you, Nisha, very, Thank very much. You. And love, 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 love to all of you, to your whole staff who are glorious. Um, we need each other more than ever. So forgive easier and love more and um, just keep singing, friends. And thank you for tuning in. And thank you, Mark. This was wonderful. And that was a conversation with the most creative and talented musical artist who's making a marvelous contribution in Jewish life, Nishama Karlbach. I hope you enjoy getting to know her on the Chaim. As always, I invite you to be in touch with me with any thoughts or comments you may have to any of the ideas expressed on this edition of L'Chaim. Please email me at rabbigalab at jbstv.org. Or you can write me at Post Office Box 360, Stamford, Connecticut, 06904. And please remember you can now listen to L'Chaim as a podcast. And so until the next time, I'm Mark Golub. L'chaim, my friends, to life. L'chaim is a presentation of Jewish education in media.
We would be pleased to send a complimentary DVD of this program to anyone who wishes to support JBS with a tax-deductible gift of $36, double chai, or more. Simply visit the JBS website at jbstv.org and click on the Donate button to make a donation by PayPal or your credit card. And please indicate the program for which you would like a DVD. Or you can send your tax-deductible check to JBS, Post Office Box 360, Stamford, Connecticut, 06904. Or you can call the JBS Pledge Line at 833-MY-JBS-TV. That's 833-695-2788. And again, please remember to indicate which program you would like to receive with our compliments. We thank you for your kind support.